Welcome to Shed the Music's Spotlight Podcast. My name is Bob Habersad. I'm a high school music teacher and co-founder of ShedTheMusic.com. Dr. Jim Frankel is the head of digital education for Weiss Music and director of Music First. Previously, he was the managing director of Soundtree, and before that, he was an instrumental and general music teacher for 15 years in the New Jersey public schools. Jim is a widely published and sought-after clinician for the local, national, and international music education community. He is on the board of directors for Time and is the past president of ATMI. Thanks, Jim, for uh, coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Bob. Always good to speak with you. So I'd like to start with something uh, very serious and rather personal. Uh, normally, I start off with something light, but, you know, I decided to change it up. What's your favorite beer? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, so I actually know uh, the answer to that question. It is Allagash uh, Curio. Uh, so it is a, a bourbon barrel aged um, Belgian beer, and um, it is my absolute favorite. Uh, I, as, as anybody who knows me in, in, in real life knows, I am an avid home brewer uh, and a, and a uh, probably I drink way too much, uh, enjoy way too much beer. Um, but yeah, Allagash Curio, for whatever reason, I think is the absolute perfect beer, the perfect balance. Um, and just one more thing on it, Bob, because I, I, I'm so happy that's how you started. Uh, is that I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at this Allagash. I've got it. I got this beer. Must have been like four years ago for my birthday. Yeah, I, I like keep going. Giant bottles, um, and I have one in my refrigerator. I always have one, um, and it's usually like for if I've had a really, really good day, I will, I will put one of those down. It's just, in my opinion, the most perfectly balanced beer there is. But I am a seasonal beer drinker, so right now I'm all into porters and stouts. And then around uh, the springtime, I get into um, um, uh, saisons and Belgians. And then in the summer, I'm IPAs all day. And then Oktoberfest in the fall. So yeah, it's it's such a wonderful uh, it's such a wonderful beverage. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. I've been I've been rocking the barley wines, the barrel aged barley wines lately. Yeah. Uh, and like, oh, I had a really good barrel aged wheat wine. If it says barrel aged in front of it, I'm pretty much all over it. And I. I drink uh, seasonally too, but I'll I'll do like a thick, nasty porter in July. I'm okay. Oh, with well, that. all right, very yeah, good. No. <laughs> yeah, my, um, my latest my latest batch of homebrew was a bourbon barrel porter, um, and it had an entire bottle of Maker's Mark in the batch, which is uh, fantastic. It up it ups the alcohol content and just tastes fabulous. So yeah. Oh my gosh! Uh, but yeah, I don't know if quite, I can do that in the summer. <laughs> you have quite the the Breaking Bad like setup i saw a couple pictures on facebook and it looks like you need at least one degree in chemistry to just like get it started it is um it I, so i i started as a regular uh, and i started as a regular kind of you know like everyone i had the hundred dollar kit where you're doing uh, extract brewing did that for a couple of years then got into all grain brewing which is just it triples or doubles or triples the amount of time but then you can get into like making your own recipes, which I really enjoyed. And then I've been doing it for 20 years, begging my wife for the system that I had. I went to a, a, a brewer's boot camp up in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, and I brewed with the Allagash Head Brewer uh, oh, wow. for two days. And um, I brewed on the system that I bought. And I just, I was like, I, I showed it to my wife. It was a lot of money. Um, and I said, look, if I save up for this, is it cool if I buy it? You know, I got to make sure the boss is happy. And uh, and and she gave me the green light and I bought it. And it's the greatest. And I bought it really uh, one month before COVID hit. Uh, so um, uh, I've had an absolute, I mean, you know, what better way to be isolated in your house than having a, a professional, uh, what's called a pilot batch brew system uh, in your garage. Yeah, everyone's making pumpernickel bread and rye. Exactly. Uh, rye bread. And you're dealing with like rye and, and exactly. uh, hops. That's awesome. Can I can I tell you about my new favorite website? Sure. It's uh, jamesfrankel.com. Oh, my God. So that is uh, 12 or now 13 years old. It is the most horrific website. No, you it's hear beautiful. Funny? This, is, this is real talk. I don't know how to get back into that site to redirect it. <laughs> Uh, I made that thing in um, in uh, Adobe something. It I don't even remember. It's either Dreamweaver or like um, uh, what was it called? I don't remember. But I I actually don't even have the at the FTP site. I don't know how to get into that site, and it's just this embarrassing. 
green filtered. Um, there, there's some good stuff on it, believe it or not. Um, and under the lesson plan section, I have all of the PowerPoints I ever used with my kids. And there's a lot of great lesson plans in there. But yeah, I've got to figure out how to redirect uh, the DNS entry. <laughs> keep it, keep it. Was it go live? Adobe yeah, Go Live. Yeah, that was it. Adobe Go okay. Live. That's it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I looked at the code. I was like, this is, I'm don't ever change it. It needs to be frozen in history. Um, because this was at like the, kind of the beginning of Web 2.0. Yes. And it's just a really well-made site for, I mean, it looks like the last time it was updated was like 2007. But That's it was correct. like, yeah. So I love it because a lot of people say like, yeah, I've been in music technology. I've been, you know, dealing with different things. I have all these ideas. And then you look back and you read some of these articles on jamesfrankel.com, which you should probably be navigating to right now. Um, and like James Frankel said it in 1999. Yeah, pretty. Like, I've been around for a while, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it, it's it's so cool. Like, did, did you really do your doctoral thesis and assessment through the internet in like... 2001 or something like I, that i built uh, a website called musicassessment.com in 2000 uh and i started building it and then i finished it and believe it or not in 2001 i ran the study and it was people submitting audio recordings that could be no longer than 30 seconds um because at that point in time in 2001 um there weren't even i mean GarageBand wasn't a thing you had to have serious interface and, and and an audio interface to make any type of audio recording that was any kind of length um yeah it's uh it, it was at the end of my abstract it basically said um one day uh people will be assessing their students online um but it ain't now um and it, it, the technology has to uh advance pretty tremendously in order to do it where um, the, the, the teachers who were in my study were rock stars. I had to train them for hours on like, all right, here's how to attach a Sibelius file to an email. Um, you know, it was that kind of, it's, it's funny that you're looking, that's, that's really deep, dark past of mine. No, I think it's, I think it's beautiful. No, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. I mean, like you were talking about podcasting like the importance of student podcasting in 2006 and like now everyone is podcasting but you were such a trailblazer um and it just kind of reminds me there's this uh podcast that i really like um 99 invisible with roman mars and they did this uh it was about geocities and how geocities was turned off like it died but people like tried to like save it yeah and uh it's just like this needs to this needs to stay because it needs to be there. It's like a, 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 a stone in time of like, this is some serious stuff. James Frankel did some serious stuff then. And like, just like look at how this works and then how it translated to now. Do you have like a, do you have, what, do you listen to podcasts? I do. Um, uh, none on music, uh, believe it or not. Uh, they're all uh, radio lab, like NPR style uh, and crime. You know, I, I do this all day, every day. And so my uh, off time on podcasts is really um, is really listening to something that's a fantasy that has nothing to do with uh, with music or technology. Do you have like a a uh, like one that well, mine what is it called? It's like a uh, so I've been teaching all day and my son woke up at four in the morning. So I'm still a little loopy. A like guilty pleasure. Do you have a guilty pleasure podcast? I have one. I have a guilty pleasure podcast. Yeah, let's a guilty hear it. pleasure podcast. Uh, it's it's called Over the Road. It's a trucking podcast. Oh. <laughs> I never thought I'd be into listening to people talking about electronic data logs right. and like just the trucking culture. But like I've been like really that's, digging that's, over the road yeah, that's pretty it's uh yeah i mean the only um my only guilty pleasure and and i'm i'm uh, i used to hide this fact from everybody uh, uh -huh. but i am a very very proud uh deadhead uh I, I i followed the grateful dead around in my uh late high school and then all through college and so I listen to dead podcasts all the time. Uh, that's the only music podcast. I only listen to, uh, you know, it's kind of, that is my guilty pleasure is the Grateful Dead, but at the trucker podcast, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's cool. Yeah. So um, do you like that? Who was with that? Who, who just toured with uh, John Mayer? 
John Mayer. How'd you feel about that? Because my dad's uh, a big deadhead. I've always listened to the dead. And like I heard that and I heard him play with it. And it was like this. It's interesting. You know, it's definitely and he was definitely listening to Jerry. You know, he was listening to Jerry's lines, his phrasing and stuff. Uh, well, how, how do you feel about that? So first of all, I think John Mayer is an exceptionally talented guitarist. Um, and um, it's kind of like the Grateful Dead fish divide. Right. I was not a fish fan. I was a Grateful Dead fan from 1986 until, you know, now. And when the dead ended in 95, I did not jump on the fish wagon. Um, and that's a controversial thing, right? So it's, there's a lot of fish heads who were dead heads. Um, and then there are a lot of people who think that John Mayer isn't dead and this is terror. He's destroyed it. I think it's literally the greatest thing that happened to them because like many bands that, that um, some would argue maybe shouldn't be playing anymore or don't need to be playing anymore. Um, I've listened to every iteration of the Grateful Dead since, uh, including uh, most recently further before before Dead and Company came around. And uh, I was uh, uh, at the show where Bob Weir, um, who is the rhythm guitarist of the Grateful Dead, uh, based at the Capitol Theater in Portchester, New York, he he basically passed out due to drugs uh, on stage. And, and Phil Lesh stood over him or like kind of just kept playing and ignored him. And, you know, it's not a good scene to watch that, you know, and yeah, uh, right. I, I'm a I'm a big, big fan. But I was sitting there going, I, I think it's over. And um, and John Mayer has, uh, in my opinion, completely injected new life into the band. I Bobby, uh, who um, I was a huge Jerry and uh, Brent fan for Deadheads. Brent was their uh, keyboard player who died in 1990 huge fan of Jerry and Brent. And uh, I, I kind of uh, fell off the wagon once uh, th those uh, once Brent checked out. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, I think uh, it, John Mayer is the best thing that's happened to them. Uh, and I I've seen probably 50 dead and company shows at this point. And um, oh, wow. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a, yeah, now that I have the means to buy uh, as many tickets as I want, you know, their concert tickets, and I have a wife who's incredibly understanding, I do I do uh, travel around uh, now in my midlife crisis seeing Dead & Company. I can't wait for them to get back on the road once this whole COVID thing is over. Yeah, we all can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, now you can travel, you are, you know, you can buy tickets. How did you go from teaching middle school to being like working having your office in new york city and like having this big music tech company could you like describe that path sure um well first of all that wasn't the path i intended on for sure i wanted to be a college professor um and so i got my doctorate purely to be to teach at the college level i i, I really enjoyed the, the kids at the middle school level I love, I love that age group. I absolutely, I was in my prime with middle school kids. I loved it, but I had this kind I've always had this kind of upward mobility idea where, well, I don't, I, I want it. What's next. I, 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 almost to a fault. I, I always have a goal. I have a two-year goal, five-year goal, 10-year goal at all times. Um, and I write it down. Uh, I have a, a mentor. Um, my very first session ever that I presented was in 1990 as a 20 year old uh, in, in New Jersey. And it was directly as a result of watching a guy named Tom Rudolph, who uh, at the time um, to me was like the greatest rock star in music education. And I basically walked up to him afterwards and I said, how do I be you? I, I know that's, that didn't come out grammatically, but I was like, I think you're amazing. How can I be more like you? And he basically said, make goals, uh, make achievable steps and, and do it. So um, I knew that um, I wanted to be a college professor. I was a tech geek. Uh, I used technology in my teaching purely as a life raft. Uh, my first, my second job that I ever had was pre-K to eight general vocal instrumental. It's not what I wanted to do, but I, I, I just took the job. And um, I was petrified, to be honest. I didn't know what to do with middle school general music and the technology. I was like, well, I do this thing. I wonder if it would work. Uh, and, you know, having having had that experience watching Tom Rudolph, I knew it would. Um, so anyway, the college professor thing, I, I, I did um, interview and was uh, offered positions and the pay <laughs> Uh, was shocking how bad it was. And at that point as a middle school band director in 2000 and 
2004, which is when I was really looking to get to get, you know, to move to the college level, I was making 100 grand as a as a middle school band director. Um, I don't mind sharing that. It was just an outrageous amount of money. I had a doctor. Where, was, where, where the heck were you teaching? Were you making a hundred grand teaching middle school in, in, in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. And that is that, that if you are on the guide, so I was step 15, you know, masters plus 30 and I did every stipended position. I was actually making more than a hundred grand as a middle school band director. I worked my ass off, um, but I did, I was the, I, I did the graduation. I did the eighth grade play. I did the talent show. You know, I did a ski club, you name it. I was doing everything I could to make money. And then my first college job that I was ever offered was $32,000. And I was like, I can't do that. That's insane. I can't even pay my school loans on that. You know that, and I will tell you, it was an incredibly eye-opening and depressing notion to me that I I got this doctorate. I thought at the time in two thousand three, two thousand four, for no reason because I that was my goal, and then I had I was just like I'm not doing this, and I got a call um, in two thousand and seven, September two thousand seven, by another dear friend of mine, a guy named Lee Whitmore, who ran a company called Soundtree. Um, the technology thing, I was always doing presentations. I was trying to build my CV, you know, actively presenting, writing articles. I wrote hundreds of articles by 2007 on music technology. I was always writing, and but it was to become a college professor, not to go into the corporate world. And then uh, this guy, Lee Whitmore, called me up. Uh, in fact, he called me in on my birthday, which was September 28th, uh, 2007, and said, would you like to take my position? I'm leaving to go run the education division of Sibelius. Um, and I was like, I would run that company into the ground. I'm a music teacher. I don't know anything, <laughs> anything about running a company. And he said, I think you'd be perfect. I want you to come in for an interview. And uh, it took a lot of convincing because I was a tenured uh, faculty member. Um, I, I was making a lot of money. I had job security up the wazoo. I had two little kids and I was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And he took me to three dinners in New York City, one of the greatest sushi places ever with my wife. And he's like, this is what the corporate world is like. You will be amazing. You should do it. And I and I went for the interview and I got it. And uh, on a Halloween of 2007, I submitted my resignation. Um, and on January 2nd, 2008, I started at Soundtree. So it was a leap of faith. Um, it was not my original goal. I'd always said if I was the only thing I'd ever leave teaching for would be to run Soundtree. That's, I was a huge fan. I was a customer. I loved them. They were a music technology integration specialist. They're very similar to Romeo Music. Uh, for those, I mean, a lot of people still, Soundtree's still around. Um, but in the mid 2000s, they were the big music tech company and I, and I got to run it and, and I met you know, I, that was just the greatest life experience for me. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of what I thought was the right thing uh, to do uh, from a music education standpoint that wasn't the right thing from a business standpoint. Um, I still believe that strongly. I'd much rather go to sleep at night knowing I did the right thing for music teachers than knowing I made a lot of money uh, screwing them over. Uh, excuse my French. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it, 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 it was kind of an accident. It was a phone call, but uh, it, it all now has seemed to make sense, um, believe it or not. So how'd you go from Soundtree to Music First? That was, uh, it, it is a story I've told many times. I'll tell it uh, to you, Bob, because it was um, a once in a lifetime, this, this can't be real. I was um, at the Florida Music Educators Conference in 2012 with a good uh, fellow employee, Jody Underwood, and we were, you know, I was on the trade show floor and Joe Berkowitz, uh, who is the founder, was the founder of NoteFlight or is the founder of NoteFlight, a very dear friend of mine walked up with a, with a, a somewhat elderly gentleman and said, Jim, I'd like you to meet um, Bob Wise. And I said, hello, nice to meet you. You know, I have my Soundtree logo on and, and my employee, right? And he goes, is there somewhere we can go and talk? And I said, sure. And I went over and he, and he this is literally the conversation. He goes, uh, Joe here says that uh, you're the man. I said, oh, that's very, that's very kind of you, Joe. I appreciate that. Thanks, yeah, Joe. you know, <laughs> that's very kind. And he goes, I like you. I was like, all right, uh, that's cool. And he goes, uh, you're going to work for me. I have no idea what you're going to do for me, but you are going to work for me. And I said, oh, well, I, I appreciate that. I don't, I, who are you? 
uh, and he said, I own a company called Music Sales. And I, and I said, I'm sorry, I have never heard of your company. Uh, I apologize. And he said, have you ever heard of the Beatles? I was like, of course I've heard of the Beatles, sir. <laughs> and he goes, uh, I, I own their digital print rights uh, for, for, you know, everything outside of the United States. I was like, really? And he goes, have you ever heard of Bob Dylan, Adele, the Rolling Stones? I was like, yes. And he goes, have you ever heard of G. Shermer? And I said, yes, I've heard of G. Shermer. He goes, I own that as well as 53 other uh, classical publishing companies. I was like, okay, sir. Uh, let <laughs> Wow. Got it. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I got it. All right. So what can I do for you? And he, and he literally said in two months, you're going to fly to London, uh, to our offices and you're going to do like a shark tank style pitch, um, for a company. And if we like your company, we will fund it and you will run it. And I said, are you serious? And he said, I am dead serious. Um, Joe tells me you're the guy to do it. And I said, okay, what's the budget? You know, what, what, you know, uh, I, I need to know what like the, the starting capital would be. He goes, I'll, we'll start off with 5 million. How's that? And I was like, are you serious? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, so to be honest, he walked away and Joe kind of smiled and winked at me. And I was like, that, that didn't just, I mean, that can't be true. So the next week I was at NAM uh, at the NAM show in Anaheim. Uh, and uh, there's Bob. And he goes, have you thought about my, uh, have you thought about my my offer? And I said, uh, I'm doing it. Yeah, absolutely. If you're flying me to London, uh, and, he, and I said, I'm actually doing a keynote address in London in two months. So it, it, the, the timing, if you want to do it this day, I'm happy to do it. So I did a Shark's Tank style, like this is what I want to do. And it was music first, almost to exactly to what it is today. I said, this is what I've always dreamed of. This is what the future is. Um, and, uh, I think the world is going to be online subscription-based pay, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that that's, what's going to happen. And so I did a 15 minute pitch to the board and they hired me on the spot. I flew back home. I resigned from Soundtree and, uh, uh April of 2012, I started at music sales as their, uh, global head of digital education. And it took me 14 months to build music first. Wow. That's nuts. It was, that is uh, nuts. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely went home. I was at the time, and you'll understand this, uh, at, at, at 2012, the writing was on the wall for um, hard installed music technology labs being a normal. Um, you know, it, it, it when once iPads came out, I knew that, uh-oh, th th this is bad. Um, not for music educators, but for everybody trying to sell the music educators, um, because the whole idea of that software should be free or really, really cheap. We were the number one reseller of Sibelius in the United States. And uh, in 2011, we, we were just barely selling it um, because people, you know, were, were looking at NoteFlight. NoteFlight came out October of 2008. I started the job, uh, you know, January of 2008, and then NoteFlight came out, and I went, "Uh oh, uh, this is this is incredible. It's free. No one's going to pay for Sibelius and Finale anymore." Um, so yeah, it it, it um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a very interesting <laughs> journey. Yeah, I, I forget that things used to cost a lot of money. Software <laughs> like Sibelius would cost a lot of money, and now like I look at an app. And it's four ninety nine, and I'm like, oh man, that's like a lot of money for an app. I don't know if I want to pay four ninety nine. That's nuts. But yeah, at a time, like I remember buying Sibelius in college, it was like four hundred bucks. And, yeah, no, oh. I, I and and Bob, you, you make a really good point. People will go into a Starbucks and spend five dollars on a venti, you know, cappuccino, no problem. Not even think about it; it'll be gone ten minutes later. But for five dollars for an app on a phone, it is a life. It's a major life decision. Um, you know, and, and for me, I, I, I am always concerned about my wife seeing an iTunes, uh, thing on our credit card statement for 99 cents. Cause she's going to go, what the hell is this? And I'll be like, oh, I bought a bucket of gems for a game I'm playing. And she's like, are you, are you crazy? You're a grown man. Just say that out loud. I was like, it's a dollar. She's like, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, you know, so yeah, the, um, when Steve Jobs walked out on stage in 2006 with the iPad, I, uh, or 2008, excuse me, iPad was after uh, the iPhone. Um, I knew that the writing was on the wall for the boxed, um, you know, the shrink wrap boxed software market. I knew it was over. 
um, basically that the Apple mentality was sell the hardware and people will want to make free stuff that you can use on it. Um, and when I, I did the keynote address at the NAM show in 2011 or 2010 or 2011, and all they were wanting was for me to tell them what to do with the iPad. Uh, all these music companies, these evergreen brands that everyone knows, they were all in the room. And I was like, this is what the iPad is going to do to your business. Um, and everyone was frightened. And, and in 2011, every booth had like, you know, Fender. Oh, here's our iPad app. You know, you'd go around to all these kind of Fend Marshall. Here's our iPad app. You're like, what? You know, everyone yeah, had right. an app uh, the next year. That's crazy. So what, what do you think the next change is going to be? I mean, I, I, this year is obviously a very catalyzing experience for music ed tech, music education in general, but we're, we're kind of off flying with what we had before quarantine, you know? Um, do you have any like predictions? Like what is, what's next? What's going to come down that was almost as different as like getting rid of shrink wrapped software and going to subscription based stuff. Do you have any, any predictions? So um, here's my thought on that. Cause it's an excellent question and, and making technology predictions is always a precarious thing to do because oh, you for know, sure. you're almost always wrong. Um, but what I think has always happened in the past is that there's been a problem and and somebody, you know, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, someone somewhere goes, here's the problem. Let me find a solution to it. So if you think about right now, if, if everybody who's listening reflects on the last 11 months uh, that we've been dealing uh, with this whole kind of COVID and lockdown and not being able to be in the same room with our students, um, think of what those problems are. So to me, those problems are that uh, video conferencing is not ideal for rehearsals. Um, and the, I, you know, the bottom line is, and we're recording this over a video conferencing, uh, you know, that that's how everybody's doing. I, I, you know, how many zoom and Google meets has one person done per day over the last 11 months? It's just, it's ridiculous, but there's a 500 millisecond dis delay. It, it, it varies, but it's a, let's just call it, you know, a 500 millisecond delay makes, um, Rehearsals impossible, uh, and and I've 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 actually sat through a lot of dissertation defenses where I've been on the committee, where people are talking about online you know learning. Um, so, first prediction is that um, they've got to figure it out. They've got to. It's going to be a hardware software um, uh, thing. I don't think that there is a way to resolve the latency without hardware. Um, uh, but who knows? That could be uh, a feature of of the actual computer itself. Can you imagine a, a Chromebook that had a latency feature in it that would eliminate the 500 milliseconds? By the way, it's possible they're doing it right now. There is a product out there that's already doing it uh, that is, um, you know, for a small group. So the first problem is how do we get large ensembles online? And and you might think, well, that's only a temporal problem, Jim. Uh, you know that you know we're going to be back in person really, really soon, and I certainly hope that's the case. But that's what people are working on right now. They're working on that. They're working on you know, there, there are some things that have been the holy grail in music technology for a while, like, hey, play a multi-track polyphonic song and have it notate it. Um, I've actually seen with my own eyes software that does it, and then they're immediately sued out of existence because it's a copyright <laughs> violation. Um, in fact, the, one of my funniest meetings ever was seeing that uh, show to my boss, and he just started smiling. And, you know, they, there were these two guys from France showing this incredible, they played a CD and it notated it. I watched it with my own eyes. I was like, <gasps> and it did it. And then he just laughed and he goes, do you have any idea who you're talking to? <laughs> that will not see the light of day. I was just like, oh my. Um, yeah. He's like, do you know the Beatles? Do you know Bob Dylan? Exactly. I, I own them. You are exactly. gone. You are out. Exactly. You are in the shark tank now. Exactly. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the, um, I think what I'm so encouraged by uh, with this, uh, the, the, the silver lining of this COVID thing um, has been a giant leap by every music teacher, forcibly for, for many, to use this stuff. And um, I think that a lot of them who have been resistant in the past, saying that it's not you know, it's not musical, it's not effective, it's a distraction, uh, you know, real music teaching, you know, is this and this and this. Um, not to say that that's not a valid argument, but the fact that 
pretty much every music teacher in America has been forced at the same time to use technology. Um, I'm really excited about that. I've been literally trying to get people for 30 years to use music technology in their classrooms. And it's always been this like 20% of the population that are doing it. Now it's 100 um, or very, very close uh, if, you know, if you're still teaching. So from a prediction standpoint, I think that now that that market is there, now that you have everybody's attention, they're going to start asking for things and they will drive the future um, mm. development. We are, you know, we went from um, a couple of hundred thousand subscribers in March to 2 million subscribers in December. Uh, that is explosive growth. And we've been ec ecstatic about it, but at the same time, terrified because we also know that that means there's 10 times the amount of problems. It's 10 times the amount of feedback. It's 10 times the amount of people saying, hey, why did you do it this way? Um, and so we're, we, we've been working like, uh, like elves in the workshop uh, for the last four months, fixing everything. People saying, why doesn't the grade book do this? We're like, no one's ever said that before. So, um, um, you know, I don't know what the next, I, th I think a lot of it will be hardware driven um, the, in, in terms of a prediction. And I don't know what the next thing, there is a next thing, absolutely. Uh, Chromebooks will be in fashion for probably another couple of years before another device comes that does it better. Um, yeah, it's, it, I, I know that's like a non-answer, but I think that, um, you know, once this once this whole remote thing is over, and please may it happen sooner rather than later, um, I think that once the the dust settles and the smoke clears, and people say, "All right, well, I had to use this thing for the last eleven months. This is what I really found useful, and I'm now going to try to apply that into my real world." Uh, I mean, you're in this world, uh, Bob. You you know that you know you have an amazing product, and and people are probably using it a whole lot more now than they were a year ago, right? Because they're they're like, I need stuff to do. I need to be teaching, and you've probably received the same type of feedback where they said, could it do this? What you know? What if it did this? You know, I know that you're you're kind of. Um, you're, you're a fantastic guy. You're a great music teacher. In, in my interview of you, uh, you know, months ago, I was just very impressed. I think you'd agree that um, the market drives the future. And I think that um, teachers now uh, are ready to say, all right, well, this is really cool now that I've seen this, but it would be really cool if it did this. And, and I'm excited about uh, the, those kind of suggestions and feedback. So how would you, as like, how would you ask people to ask you for features and things? Because I get emails like that. And sometimes it's like, I can't make anything out of the request. You know, sometimes it's just so either or vague, or sometimes there's just anger because there's frustration. Like, how would you suggest somebody go about requesting a feature or reporting a bug to a software company since we're all using them right now? Like, what do you think is the best way for someone to do that? Well, we pride ourselves in our customer support. We have a we have a, a public uh, or it, it's a closed group, but it's very, there are a lot of people in it watching, um, and people are posting their you know uh, their feedback, their comments. Sometimes it's anger driven, sometimes it's frustration, sometimes it's desperation. Um, what I'll say uh, is, if you want a feature built, do it the right way, rather than say this thing is crap. Right, you know, and we we get that. Everybody gets that. Like this is this is the worst thing I've ever seen because it doesn't do this one esoteric thing. That's not really <laughs> a great way to approach it, um, because number one, naturally, I mean, Music First is my baby, and the and the fourteen people that work for me, it's their baby too. And when you say your baby's ugly, you don't really get somebody going, "Oh, really? You know, tell me more." It's like, "Hey, buddy," um, so. Uh, we have um, what I love. The best way for you know is when somebody emails me directly and says, "Jim, I love your flat platform, but here are a few suggestions that would make my life so much easier." Um, and I love that kind of dialogue. I always engage with people when they go that way. Like you know, the the compliment sandwich it works. Yeah, you know, like hey, this is really great, but this is what I think you could do. And if you did that, I would recommend this to all my friends. That is a great way to approach it rather than saying, you ruined my day. 
I hate, you know, this platform. And we don't, we don't get a lot of that, uh, I'll be honest. But when we do, I take it very personally. Um, we do, uh, we're about to add a um, uh, upvote feature, uh, you know, a link so that people can, can do that. I, I'm always, whenever I see other software programs that have that, like feature suggestions, they're often dormant, dead end, like nobody, like somebody commented eight years ago, wouldn't it be cool if it did this and no one follows up? I hate that. I'm not going to do that. If we do, you know, that makes the customer feel like you're not listening to me. Um, so we are doing an upvote um, kind of, you know, feature like where the more people suggest it, the higher it goes in the priority. Um, we've been working on kind of a mixture of um, triage, which sounds really negative, um, and, um, you know, aspirational development. So we're always working on bug fixes, which is just natural because of when Chrome upgrades, when a device, when a new device comes on the market, the bugs just happen. And of course, as you probably know, the minute you fix one thing, it causes something else to break. Um, uh, like for example, Google Classroom out of nowhere just suddenly said, okay, we're making this new thing. They, they gave nobody any notice. They're Google, so they don't have to. And so Google Classroom broke for us for two days and everyone's online going, this is crap, I hate this. this is, it's like, hold on, we're working as hard as we can to fix it. Um, so yeah, the, it, a compliment sandwich always works and, and, and reaching out directly on a pedagogical standpoint and not starting off with, I hate your software is a really good place to start. Um, but I understand it, I totally get it. When people are like, you know, I planned this for my class today and when I woke up, you know, you were doing maintenance, you know, how on <laughs> earth, why did you pick this time to do the maintenance? I totally get it. So like if you were teaching band right now or like what did you teach band when you were I, teaching I taught band uh, strings and general music? Okay. So if you were doing band strings in general, let's just, let's just do band. Cause there's a yep, lot band. of band. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And if you were an active middle school teacher right now, how would you be teaching through this pandemic? Like, what would you be doing? Well, it's a it's, a it's an question. interesting thought experiment outside of the pandemic. And then we're all thrown into it. And it's like, oh, man, this experiment just got real, real quick. Well, you know, I, one of the you know, I have my, I have a podcast as well. And I interview all these teachers and I'm asking them that question and they're all doing it differently, which is really it's really, really interesting. Some of them are doing it better than others. Some of them have kind of put their hands up and said, I I don't know, you know, some are saying, well, just focus on creativity. You know, let's be realistic. If I was a band director, my number one goal is that when I'm back in person, I still have a band. I still have kids there. Yep. Retention, retention, retention would be my number one goal. I don't want these kids to be like, eh, this kind of sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, so that would be my number one is how do I engage these kids? How do I make, uh, you know, a, a virtual um, band experience really engaging for the kids? So for me, my approach right now would be to try everything. Uh, and not make it, all right, well, you know, you all have to hand in a recording of yourself playing this band piece, which will never play on a stage, but I want you to play it. And every week I'm going to check on your practice record that we found online. And, you know, whether or not you use the platform that I sell or any technology tool, um, if that's your only approach is we're just going to, you know, you're going to play your instrument, you're going to submit recordings. They're going to, they're going to stop. They're not going to do it. They're going to say, yeah this blows. I'm not doing this. This isn't fun. I mean, you were a band guy, right? I'm a, you know, or you were a guitar player, right? Or yeah. But I've taught, I've taught band before and I have guitar ensembles and stuff. So when I was in band I, as a kid, it was because it was fun, right? That that's it. I mean, that that's, it wasn't, Oh, I really want to become a professional tuba player. All my friends were in it. I loved being in marching band. I loved it. It was like a, it was like a family, uh, all my friends in high school were in band. And so my whole life was banned. And if my, you know, and I had a director who was a whack, a whack job, you know, screamed at us. And it was just like, we found it funny to get him angry, you know? So I, I know that's not necessarily, uh, you know. I think we might've went to the same high school. <laughs> yeah, no, same, I, I mean, thing. Um, the reason I became a music teacher was to, because I was like, you are such a bad music teacher. I'm going to show you what a good, in, in retrospect, once I became a teacher, I realized just how good this guy was. 
right? And and just how much of a idiot, you know, a jerk all of us kids were uh, to him. Uh, you know, he got his karma. I actually became good friends with him later in life. He was a fantastic music educator, but I just didn't realize it at the time. So back to your question, I think it would be a wide range of activities. Um, Check-ins, just how are you? I just, I don't care about music today. I just want to hear how you're doing. How's everything going? How's your family? You know, you know, that kind of a, a check-in for their emotional health. Um, because a lot of part, a, a lot of being in band is that social connection with your friends and with the director and, and that kind of, you feel like you're part of a family. There would be some creative exercises where the kid, there, there'd be, hey, let's make a podcast. Hey, let's watch this virtual concert. Um, you know, let's make small ensembles. I would literally be throwing, if I was teaching right now band, I'd be doing every single different thing I could do to try to engage them. And when I found something that they liked, let's do that, right? Uh, the, the idea of making these virtual um, concerts, virtual ensembles, virtual performances is really difficult. Um, I would probably do one. Um, you know, or at least try. I'm a tech nerd. So I'd be like, all right, let me learn how to use Adobe Premiere or Final Cut. I've never used those before. I've always been like an iMovie guy. Uh, but you know, those grids, you know, with the Brady Bunch with, with 30, 40, 50, 60 squares, I'd probably try to make one, realize how much work it is and go, okay, I'm not doing that again. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it, it would be, um, it, I would, I think, and every band director, choir director, and orchestra director who's listening to this, you would probably agree that the main thing you want is I just want these kids to stay with me through this uh, in, by any means necessary so that when we can't be in the same room again, I don't have to rebuild a program from scratch. You know, and, and that, that, that is a very, it's a very real possibility. Um, those who are just saying, I'm just gonna replicate what I used to do pre-COVID uh, online, uh, that probably isn't working for everyone. It, it may be working for some, uh, but it, I, I don't think it will work for me. Yeah, no, it, what you said was, it's spot on. Just making it fun. Kids go into music to have fun playing together. And, you know, I've, I've done virtual ensembles, but I'm not doing them anymore. I, I showed kids, how, I figured out a hack on how to do it on the iPad easy, where kids can make their own virtual ensembles. Mm -hmm. So I'm having them do like chamber groups. I'm trying to tell all of the band director, choir director friends I know, like, don't replicate what's going on in the classroom because it's going to be a, a poor representation of that experience. It's going to be a bad facsimile, you know, do project-based stuff uh small ensembles get them arranging get them composing ha let them have fun and like you know blend asynchronous and synchronous learning so you can have those individual connection conversations like you were talking about and, and i think yeah throw it all against the wall see what sticks and then put your ego and your you're gonna have to put the baton and your coattails in the closet for until the end you know yep. and then maybe put on a strange youtube hat and be a little be a little weirder than normal yep and like i'm having a blast in my basement in this, in this video recording studio because i get to be just as strange as i want and uh, normally i can be out there and crazy and sometimes the kids get a little too riled up but you know vimeo or vimeo uh zoom is a vacuum so the kids can't like get too squirrely if i'm just like nuts so i mean yeah your suggestions are are, are totally on point think about what's going to keep those kids because budget cuts probably are coming. And if your uh, position is dictated by the numbers that are enrolled in your class, then. It's very Ooh. real what you just said. It, uh, unfortunately, yeah. it is very real. I'm, I'm hoping that, um, that uh, any kind of funding from Congress, further funding helps avoid those types of cuts. Um, but, but municipalities, local towns, they're gonna be hit pretty hard. Uh, I'm just, I'm crossing my fingers. I, I would be doing everything I could as a music teacher right now to make sure that my numbers are there and that I am an essential part of that school um, uh, right now. And I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm going to try as hard as, I mean, I've been really inspired um, watching um, what, what some teachers are doing, what they're pulling off. Um, and, and I think that music educators are the most resilient of all in, in a building. Um, because we've always had challenges thrown at us, pandemic or not. Um, yeah, it, it is inspiring, but it is also very real uh, that 
it's not optional. You you need to make that you need to keep your numbers and you need to keep these kids engaged. So if you you've mentioned this before, and it's obvious, it's obvious that you have a, a great mind for thinking forward. You talked about your, you know, one year, five year, 10 year plans. You just talked about, you know, putting your nose to the grindstone th- so you can work through this. Uh, and it seems like that's just part of you. But do you have any advice for someone that wants to get into like the muse ed tech world or the corporate world if they're kind of uh, jaded by just music teaching in general, if they want to get out, do you have any advice or just like life hacks, tips to be the better you or break break open and break out into something else? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always, it seems a little presumptuous for me to give advice on, on, on what people should do, but I'll just give you some of the things that work for me. Let's just put it that way. Um, I believe very strongly, I'm a very type A person. I, I'm, I'm, I was raised uh, by two parents who always had upward mobility. Um, you know, my dad was a very high rank in the New York City Police Department, did not want to just be a patrol, you know, beat cop. He wanted to be the head of the, you know, and he, he retired as a, as, as a deputy chief of police of the New York City Police Department. Um, so, you know, that kind of watching that, watching my mother who built a business from two students to over a thousand, a, da- a dance studio, I had a really good role model or role models. Um, so I've always had that goal. And then um, I, I, I have some harsh advice. No one is going to give it to you. No one. No one cares. Nobody. It's it's what you do that matters, in my opinion. And no one. I know this sounds really harsh, but no one cares about you. Right. You know, your family does. They love you. But in the in the corporate world, in the larger scheme of things, you know, I feel very, very strongly that you need to create your own. If if you have a goal like, hey, I want to work for a music tech company. I want to run a music tech company. I want to join the corporate world. Okay, excellent. Now you need to make a very concrete plan on what you're going to do to get there. And what I always had in my goal idea was um, when I saw Tom Rudolph, I said, I want to be that guy. I want to be in the front of the room at a session talking about music technology. So when I asked him, how do you do it? He said, submit a session application. I go, is that it? He goes, just do it. Just submit this. I was like, I'm 20. Who's going to listen to me? Like, he's like, just submit the application. The worst thing that could possibly happen is they say no. Right. I got it. Right. Like I was 20 years old and they're like, all right, you're, you're in. I was like, and so there was a program called Mac voice that did voice leading. Right. And I, I did a session on, it just like, that idea of just do it, I know sounds like trite, but he said, do, there are so many music teachers who have so much to offer, but also have a lot of self-doubt, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't think, oh, well, no one will care about what I'm doing. Baloney, right? There's a much better word that I'd like to use, but I'll keep it clean. Um, just do it. I mean, put yourself out there is number one. I then said, well, you know, I wanted, my next goal after that was I wanted to write a book. So I asked like, hey, you're an author. How do you do it? He goes, I wrote articles and articles and articles as like a practice to do it. I'm like, okay. So I started writing articles. I, I wrote a, I started a blog in I think 2004 and I wrote a blog post every single day of the year on music technology, like religiously. I'd wake up at 5.30 and be like, all right, what am I writing about today? Oh, I just found this cool little thing. I'd write two paragraphs, post move on. Right. And, um, writing Unfortunately, articles. that link is dead on James Franklin. I'm sorry that it was, uh, it's yeah, okay. it was, it, I was like, Oh, blog. Heck yeah. I want to look at this blog. So if anybody yeah. wants to get that back, Evan Tobias at the Arizona state university, it was his platform and, uh, it's gone, but, uh, yeah, all my blog posts, it's probably 2000 posts gone. So anyway, that's a whole other story, but that kind of, and, and none of it was paid. The, every article I ever wrote, none of them were paid. You know, it was just like, I'm doing this as a, a kind of, this is my path. I'm going to do it. And um, I think that every single music teacher that has a passion for it, that really is into it, that, that feels like this is what I was born to do, has the ability um, to do whatever they want. 
and, and fabricate that future for themselves. Do not, no one is going to come to you in your music classroom someday and go, hey, Bob, would you like to run a company just because you're a good music teacher? That's not how it works. You have to be unafraid, uh, unashamed, uh, you know, um, emboldened to say, I have ideas. This, I mean, you've done it. You've done it. You, you created Shed the Music out of nothing, right? You, you just said, this doesn't exist. I'm going to go do it. Nobody said, uh, hey, Bob, we'd like you to build this site. You just did it. Nobody asked you to, correct? This is correct. Right. And, and I think that every music teacher has that potential to say, look, there is nothing that does this. I'm going to start it. I'm going to, you know, let me figure out how to do this. Let me teach myself how to do that to, to get there. Um, there are some great examples of people who have done it, but I think that making these kind of a large goal and then trying to create small goals that will get you to the large goal um, is the way I've always done things. And um, the, the weird thing is right now that my goal for the last nine years was to make music first as successful as possible. I said, I, I want it to be profitable. I want it to, that people know the name. And the weird thing is, Bob, is that I achieved it this year under bizarro circumstances. Um, the company is doing extremely well and I've just achieved, like literally, I just achieved it. I finally got the goal that I've been trying for nine years and I don't have one right now. So it's like, all right, well, and, and by the way, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm making a new goal. It's like, okay, well, what do I want? Is it, is it, you know, what further success for music first? Is there something else for me out there? I have no, idea. I mean, I, I plan on staying with music first for the rest of my career. Um, but you know, there's going to be a new goal, you know, it's going to be like, all right, now, how do we do this even better? Uh, and I think every music teacher has that ability and every music teacher should, um, I, I won't say who it was, but uh, somebody I, I interviewed uh, for a podcast who I happen to think is an extraordinary music teacher kept saying, I don't know why you'd want to interview me. And I think there are a lot of music teachers who feel that way, that they don't mm -hmm. have anything to share with the larger profession. And it's just wrong that everyone has something to share. Everybody has a project that they've done. And I think the more people that do it, the better the profession will be. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I feel like the thread between all of the people that I've talked to about that topic is like not have, I mean, a healthy amount of self-doubt is pretty good. I mean, we were all at music school, so yeah. we all had to play juries and we all had to feel yeah, no, bad that, about that, that. That's what's part of being a musician, musician is self-doubt. It is. Yeah. But like being able to look at something and feel okay with like listening to it. Like I, I, I wrote music for an ad last week and I catch myself like playing the ad music that I wrote. And I was like, you know what? That was really, <laughs> that was really cool. That was really good. It's okay to do that and not feel bad that you're ringing your own bell. Uh, and then that autodidacticism, I don't know if that's not a word, being able to teach yourself stuff and like being yeah. able to go out and be like, I don't know, like, I don't know how to code. Like, I want to do this thing on a website. How do you do a responsive embed of this item? I don't know. Let me just Google it, you know, <laughs> and then you can yep. figure it out. Um, so I yeah, I mean, I'm end... learning ukulele. I, I, I was like, I got, I want to do, I, 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 I got a ukulele for Christmas. I'm not, I, I, I find, you know, my fingers are, are, are you know, it hurts. You, you're a good, you, you know, like non-guitarist, non-ukulele yeah. players. It's like, wow, this makes little grooves in my fingers and it doesn't really feel that good. And my fingers are really big for the ukulele, but it, it's great to, to do that. It's like, all right, I'm going to learn it. I'm going to figure this out. I have, I have a really strange ukulele anecdote. And then I want to go to uh, my final question. Right. So when I go to uh, conferences, I go with my teaching partner and he's also the co-founder of the shed paul levy and um you know we'll go it's it's fun conferences are fun it's fun to interact with people it's fun to learn stuff um uh, sometimes you get a little you know goofy because you get cooped up doing this the same you know doing the same thing over and over again so i had this persona um because my, my middle name is gustav and my first name is bob but robert so my persona was robert gustav and my method book my ukulele method book is uh I kalele, ukulele, we kalele. And I'd go around as <laughs> That's Robert That's a great Gustav. name, by the way. You should trademark that immediately. <laughs> Thanks. Because, I mean, the top three strings are tuned like the guitar you know it's a fourth and then a third and then i just i ignore that other weird one that's out of sync yep. and so i could shred on ukulele just playing the top three strings so i'll like be robert gustav and i'll like go to the convention and i'll like be and, and paul's my handler like he'd be like oh this is <laughs> ukulele ukulele and then i'll like shred and i'll put it down and like hey come to my session it's anyway uh, so this that's kind awesome. of 
you get to ask this question to a lot of people. So I'm sure you have had an idea and this kind of tales with like, you've been working on the same goal for nine years and now you're finally there and it's like, what's the next thing? So this is not normally how I end my podcast because this is your thing. But if you had a magic wand that could change anything in music tech, what would it be? Wow. Uh, hmm. Yeah, it's a hard question to be asked. It is a very hard question. Um, (laughs) I think that um, this this will sound a little bit kumbaya-ish, but I mean it. Um, One of the things, the the thing that um, keeps me going and motivates me, and there are days when it's hard. It's really hard to do this. Uh, you know, to run a company in the music ed tech space, it, it's it's hard. Uh, and there are days when um, competitors, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a competitive field. And the weird thing about the com- the competition, and 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 I'll get to the magic wand bit. The weird thing about the competition is that at a conference like that, you're all in different booths, like you're in a different camp. You know, like oh, come to our camp. You know, be in our camp. You know, come to us. You know, it's 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 almost like um, like any type of competitive marching band, anything. It's like you, but at the uh, when you really boil it all down, you're just trying. Every one of these companies is just trying to help music teachers, right? That 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 if they're not doing that, then shame on them. They don't belong in the industry. Um, and I would, if I could, I, I know this will sound silly, but I do mean it. If I could wave a magic wand, all of the competitors would just stop it, like uh, being competitive with each other and say, how do we work together? Um, and I know that, and that's why I say it sounds a bit kumbaya-ish, but I, I truly mean it, that um, the minute, one of the greatest things that could happen, it, it was really heartwarming back in March to see all these music tech tech companies step up and say, you can have our stuff for free for the rest of the year. Yes, there's a marketing aspect of it. We'd be lying if we said there isn't like a hope that maybe they'll use it in the fall. Um, and certainly it paid it paid off for everybody who tried that, you know, saying, let's give it away. But I do think that the, the, the thrust behind that was truly altruistic to try to help music teachers. Because the bottom line is that if we don't help music teachers and we don't have customers, if we don't have a strong music education program in the United States, then we don't, we're all at, we're all unemployed. Um, so what I would, if I had a magic wand, all of the competitors of, that are of, of music first, every competitor that's out there, we'd all figure out a way to work together that would make, that would benefit everybody that would, um, that would say to a music teacher, oh, if you want this product and this product, no problem, they can work together. Uh, you don't have to be like, well, if I'm using this and I can't possibly use this because they hate each other. That's, again, we're all, every one of my competitors, when we're not, when the conference ends, when the exhibits end at 6 p.m., we all go and hang out with each other and tell stories and, and, and we're really good friends. Um, and I just wish that on the, the battlefield, we could be a little bit uh, more friendly and figure a way out to work together. Um, I know that's, it may sound ridiculous to you, but that is my magic wand, that, that the, the competition, we could all just put our swords down and say, look, look what, 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 what benefits a band director in, um, you know, in Iowa who is struggling and can't figure this out? How can we make all these tools work together uh, to help them? Wow. The funny thing is, when I was preparing my answer to that question, the first thing I wrote down was, can we all just be nice to each other? And I was like, I can't just, but yeah, it's, so I like to end with some sort of action item, some sort of collaboration. So like on the first one, uh, Eric Howe and I, you know, wrote the, the music to the podcast together. I've been like working on collaborating. So if we can make an action item, like how could we take a step closer to making that happen? And I think it's it's we as not just like me and you, Jim. It's we as in like whoever's listening. Like, what can you do at a conference? What can you do when you're interacting with other people to make that happen? I, I don't I don't know what it is, but I mean maybe it's just one of those uh, one of those things where if you just think about it, 
Like it's one of those, they have these like sociological things where like if you see somebody hurt on the sidewalk, um, then, you know, you're going to think the next person is going to help them. But if you know that that sociological phenomena occurs, you know that everyone is thinking that. So you're going to go help that person. So I think maybe if we have the bug in our ear and this isn't like a tangible thing, this isn't going to be a lesson plan. This isn't going to be a video you can show your kids for a coral warm up or something. But maybe if you can just think of that, like maybe if we just change the word competition in our heads to something else to flip it, then maybe we could all just help each other out to be better music teachers because that's what it's all about. You're right. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and as you said a little earlier and, 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 and this will be my final word, I'm sorry, <laughs> but the, the music education is in a precarious spot right now, period, full stop. You'd be lying if you said anything else, <laughs> because when the budgets happen and we're all hoping that it doesn't, but when it, you know, that this is a critical moment for music education in the United States and around the world, in my opinion. And this is the time for us all to work together. There's a there's a, a trite saying that you know, oh, the tide, you know, with the right the rising tide, may, you know, all boat. I forget the name. It's, I'm, I'm pulling a, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying. That rising tide uh, raises all boats. Uh, I, I think that um, you know, if we could all just stop with the competition, and stop saying, you know, this is what's this is what's bad about them, and instead focus on what do music teachers need. How do we make it happen for them so that a product that's this company sells can work with the product that this company? That's actually what I tried to do when I made my company. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think now is a critical time and uh, I, I hope people are listening. I'm, I'm open. I, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, uh, Jim Frankel, for coming on the podcast. Some excellent words. And now we all have something. We all have something to work on and work towards. So uh, see you in the shed. <laughs>